Hello, I'm Clover Stroud and welcome to Tiny Acts of Bravery. My guest this week is actor, comedian and writer Rob Delaney. Rob's son Henry died of a brain tumour when he was just two years old. And Rob is absolutely fearless and so brave in the way he talks about and contemplates life in the aftermath of such monumental loss. I really loved how outspoken he was with me about the way Henry's death has changed the way he relates to other people. And I think there's a real courage in that. And I also love talking to Rob about family life and his take on marriage in particular. Because our conversation was about grief, of course. But beyond that, Rob shared with me outstanding insights on how to live and love well, as he is incredibly wise and, frankly, pretty brilliant when it comes to talking about family life and also commitment and sex and marriage and what that kind of long-term partnership really takes. This was a really, really special interview. And after talking to Rob, I felt bolder and braver and more optimistic about life. This is a feeling I really love when I finish a great conversation, that sense of shared humanity. And it was honestly pretty magic to finish this first series of Tiny Acts of Bravery, talking to Rob about so much of the big stuff of life. And I hope that you enjoy it as much as I did. Rob Delaney, it's really a huge privilege to be in this studio with you. Thank you so, so much for coming on. I'm privileged to be with you, Clover. Thank you. I have been completely immersed in your book. I've read it several times, your your most recent book, and I've been thinking so deeply about Henry, your little boy. I want to start by talking about Henry, and I want to hear about Henry because I've seen pictures of him on your Instagram, and he looks mm-hmm. like the most lovely little boy. Mm. Yeah, he is a delicious little guy. Uh, it's funny. Um, a picture came up. You know, if you have um, an iPhone, it'll show you just there's like a for you section on your little phone mm. dashboard that shows you, you know, five or six pictures from your past each morning. And uh, I love that so much because they're so often pictures of Henry. It's like the one weird tech thing that they miss by mistake invented that's actually good and um <laughs> i love the sort of exposure therapy where you just kind of get stunned um or i get kind of stunned by a picture of my son who's dead and see him in various circumstances you know either with his brothers or his mom or with me um and one came up the other day where he was naked and you could see um, his tracheostomy, his um, what they call a Hickman line. It's like a permanent port into your right near your heart where they can deliver medicine intravenously and take blood. And for people who have situations where they need to have a lot of stuff coming in and a lot of stuff coming out regularly, they just put that in rather than constantly be poking you uh, full of holes. Um, and so he's got that. He's got uh, a nasogastric tube he's he's one in the picture and he's got very thin hair and he's kind of you know he's not outdoors a lot at this point um or at all really so he's almost his skin is like translucent and he just looks like this little alien um this smooth little beautiful naked alien with extra parts 
And I love that picture because it's him, you know, the way he came into the world, but then with all his extra stuff that he got because of his brain tumor and its removal. And I could just stare at it forever because, you know, I don't see those things and think about how they were surely inconvenient for him and painful. And, but I just see, you know, I know their necessity and I know that they really became part of him and, you know, I think about his bravery um, and his strength and endurance. It's funny because from the age of one to two, you just explode in growth and discovery. And um, for him, uh, he was also learning, not even relearning some things because, yes, the surgery and the tumor robbed him of some abilities, but he was so young, he hadn't even developed some of them, you know, mm-hmm. like he didn't even ever walk before they took out the tumor. So, you know, he's beautiful and we loved him like you would any any little fun one-year-old, but he's also been given these incredible obstacles that he met with just such sort of inborn grace, you know, because he didn't, like you and I, if we did that, we'd be like, all right, where I should also have some awards pinned to my skin because look at how heroically I'm navigating mm. this. And but for him, it was just oh, I guess this is what I do. So your two little sons then, when Henry died, they were how old were they when he died? Four and six. And they were involved. I mean, you write beautifully about them in being involved with his care and mm-hmm. the kind of the physical caring for his the tube in his neck yeah. and what they had to, to go through and. Yeah. Can you tell me about what they have learned and maybe taught you, I suppose, as well, about bravery and courage in the face of such monumental loss? Um, I mean, I'm partial to my own sons, but if two of them did such an amazing job and they're both very different from each other, mm. um, then I, and I have to imagine, and they were four and six when he died, you know, they were two and four when he was born, then maybe those skills and those desires to help a little sibling uh, going through a very difficult time are, are quite natural. So I'm so glad that we did that and allowed that and didn't try to keep him away from the hospital or his room in our house, which mm. pretty much was a hospital room once he moved home and got him, them involved in setting up his tube feeds and showed them how to suction, you know, saliva and mucus out of a tracheostomy tube. Because you know how it's sort of like, like we live in London in 2023, Mm. right? You see some pretty terrible parenting in the sense that you see like kids coddled and they, and it's so awful. Like independence is the best thing you can do for your kid. And they can load a dishwasher, they can wash up the dishes, they can fold laundry, and you have to have them doing this stuff. Well, even more and better than that, they can do, you know, medical care. Um, You know, you don't want them doing it all the time, but, you know, if there's somebody that they love, you know, and that's such a wonderful way to love somebody. Mm -hmm. I mean, God knows I miss doing all that stuff. So they wanted to do it too, and we let them, and they became quite good at it. Mm -hmm. Um, there was a show, I, she was, oh God, I can't believe I can't remember her name. Ellie something. She has dwarfism and she's won five gold medals in the Olympics. And, um, there was a show on recently, uh, where she went looking for her birth mother, 
um, and found her. And at one point, they're visiting different kids who've been adopted or families that have a disabled child where in the past the parents would have, even the hospital would have been like, you should give them up for adoption. You don't want to deal with that. And uh, one baby they met had a disability that necessitated a uh, tracheostomy. And anyway, they showed the changing of the tracheostomy dressing, which you have to do every day for anybody who has a tracheostomy. And so my wife and I were wrapped watching it. And we watched it with our two older boys. And um, they watched many times as we changed his tracheostomy tapes. And my wife and I were just like, oh, my God. You know, I was like holding my face, crying, you know, watching it, being like, I so miss doing that. And um, I don't know. If I miss doing that, then they miss setting up as tube feeds, that's for sure. Yeah. And I think it's really interesting as well because there is such a sort of instinct to coddle, as you say, protect children to keep them away from anything that might be considered yeah. scary, to, to mm-hmm. not tell them about death, which I find so yeah. bizarre as well. Um, my sister died in 2019 and a big part of my sort of, our sort of moving in through the next bit of our life as a family mm-hmm. has been embracing death and bringing yeah. death to the table yeah. and taking the kids to her grave and mm-hmm. very much talking about what death is mm-hmm. and what happens yeah. and and maybe having you know my kids some of them think that you die and then you die and that's it others mm-hmm. have wild ideas about reincarnation yeah. and they might change those ideas yeah. but having those conversations with kids about yeah. death is very very important yeah. you think oh big time yeah i mean a it's going to happen to all yeah. of us uh b not in the order of our choosing you know and it's it's what's for dinner, you know, <laughs> if we're born on this earth. And so to try to shield them from that is so weird. Why do you think we've, we are so afraid of talking about this thing that happens to absolutely everybody and everybody that we love and us, which is death? Death and sex, we hate talking about mm-hmm. it. I love the fact that in your book you've talked really openly about death and sex as mm-hmm. well. Why are we so bad? Why are we so scared? Why are we not brave enough to kind of confront it? Mm. Well, I'll go with death first. I think we, there's a lot of questions and we simply can't answer it. And our gigantic frontal lobes, our brains, they're so big that we have to exit our mom's body before we can even <laughs> take care of ourselves because of our stupid big heads. We want to know. And since we don't know, we get scared. And then to try to exert some control over it, we try to shape the narrative or hide it from people smaller and less hairy than ourselves, which is so ridiculous because we just don't learn anything between the age of four and 40 or beyond that equips us to deal Mm -hmm. with it. It's way beyond that. So it's not something that a few decades is going to be give you say, oh, yeah, no, I know better. I know better than a four-year-old who has some crazy idea. Why wouldn't their crazy idea be correct? Mm -hmm. How dare you suggest that it isn't, you know, or that you have a better one? That's So I spoke to a couple friends of mine who had had been through real tragedies uh, when they were kids as as Henry was getting ready to die. And I was like, what's going to happen to my other boys? You know, is this going to is there anything I can do to prevent this from messing them up for life? And both my friends were like, no, you don't have to worry about that. You're with your kids. You're being open and honest with them. And that's all you can do. Um, and then they were both like, yeah, they might be screwed up, but it won't be because their brother died. <laughs> you know, So you won't get to handily blame it on that. So I think 
part of my being open and honest um, with the kids about it is a form of humility and me mm. saying, look, I don't know better than you mm. do. And they help us so much. I mean, watching them navigate grief helps me, gives me permission to freak out, scream, smash a glass, lie face down on the floor. You know, that's a great way to deal with it. Mm. Um, in fact, when those impulses come, it's better for your mental, emotional health to, you know, adhere or to follow through on it. And and, and to feel it and, yeah. and, and manifest it. Yeah, mm. because I think I might have said in the book, I don't know if I did, but you don't do grief, but grief does mm. you. And it's a good idea to try to be sleeping enough and drinking enough water and exercising here and there mm. so that when the big waves come, they don't kill you. Mm, absolutely. There's a kind of righteous and absolutely justified fury in your book of wanting people to experience and know and listen mm -hmm. to what you are going through. And you write, I want you to understand, I want you to know I'm grieving. Mm -hmm. And I mean, there are some very kind of incredibly vivid things of like you write about wanting the reader, the people who you are communicating with mm -hmm. to know what it feels like to hold your your son's dead body in your arms. Yeah. Um, that feels like a very brave and very, very important thing to me that you are doing there. But can you tell me about why it was so important to communicate that feeling of, listen to me, this is what it feels like? Well, I mean, I guess that came from the fact that I love my fellow man. And now, you know, coming up on 50... I now know that we hurt people in our lives, right? We hurt people that we love. There's no way to not do that. And, and then there's tough love as well, which is a form of love. And I thought, you know, it wouldn't really be honest or kind of me to write a book where I say, you know, at the end, but then, you know, the sun came out and um, food regained its flavor and blah, blah, you know, mm. like, and or I hope, I hope, no pun intended. I hope the word hope is not in my book anywhere um, other than in a really sort of quotidian fashion because um, I didn't want to give anybody hope. I wanted to hurt people. And yeah. I said it was okay if if I showed them that my family is doing better and going through this in a way that is perhaps sustainable or that we are weaving our grief into our lives mm -hmm. in, a, in a way that, you know, works for us. It was okay to show that, but it wasn't okay to tell it. You know what I mean? As a credit to the audience, you know, um, I've made more TV and movies and stuff than I have written books. And it's really nice to uh, let the audience draw some conclusions mm -hmm. and to meet you halfway because then it stays with them better and then they've really learned, you know. Mm -hmm. So, you know, does my family, does my wife and my three surviving sons, do we laugh a lot? Yeah, we absolutely do. Mm. Do we have fun? Is there mystery in our lives and excitement? Absolutely. You know, do we scream at the heavens every day or even every week? No. No, we don't. Mm. But we do when we see fit or when we need to. Mm. And um, so I just thought it was – if I give a shit about the people reading the book, then I have to let them just – glean that on their own rather than tell them and everything worked out yeah and because also after death there is an impulse for people to want to say and and you know then i saw 
people talking about signs, for example, you know, mm -hmm. I've found great peace in seeing these robin or these deer or this black mm -hmm. cat or whatever, to try and tie something up and say that yeah. there is, uh, you know, positivity and there's something that goes forward. And of course there is that, but mm -hmm. there is also the ongoing rage that goes forward and the ongoing deep, deep sadness that yeah. goes forward. And if, and your life grows around that and your life yeah. gets bigger around that. But I think to communicate the fact of life can be extremely dark and violent mm -hmm. and life can be extremely beautiful and unknowable yeah. and those two things happening and can happen exactly in the same day. at the same time yeah. is so important. And I think also, I really like the way you said, um, I find it difficult to relax fully around people who've not had calamity, tragedy and pain. Yeah. And I like that honestly because I absolutely share that feeling of wanting to know yeah. what the heart of the matter is with somebody, you know? Yeah. What's really there? I mean, I am going tonight out with one, two, three other bereaved parents and then another woman whose husband died. Mm. And we're going to have fun. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> you know, we're going, we're going on a thing called a hot, tug where we're going to go <laughs> in a hot tub boat okay. <laughs> and travel around on a river. We will laugh and we will have a good time and I will be so much more chilled out with them mm. than I would be, you know, with uh, normal people. With normal people. Um, <laughs> yeah. And we will have fun. Yeah. I mean, we're going to have a good time. Like, Do you think it makes you have more fun? I mean, I think that the more pain... The more, and I have had a high degree of tragedy and trauma in my life, different kind from you, but I have had a high. And I think that the more pain there is, the more poetry there is, the more beauty there is. So I don't know. Um, I'm tempted as a people pleaser to say, yes, absolutely. The answer is I don't know the answer to that question, mm. but I do know that, you know, you have a very vivid new color, you know, mm. in your palette. You know, do the other ones, is it like where you lose your hearing and then other senses compensate? Is it like, you know, the depths allow you to appreciate the heights? Uh, yeah, in some ways, certainly yes. Okay, I've, I've convinced myself of what you said. <laughs> <laughs> I really love the fact that the book is many things, but it's also a real handbook. I think it is a handbook for marriage and relationships and the mm -hmm. way that you write about your relationship with your wife with your mm -hmm. with your sons as well but there's the intimacy of the way that you write about your relationship with your wife and mm -hmm. needing to touch each other to communicate with each other to go for a walk to have sex together mm -hmm. to be together and to really see each other is mm -hmm. a really really important and profound piece of writing about relationships and intimate relationships and and a marriage and I loved the bravery of the fact that you wrote about the first time that Henry had his first surgery. You mm -hmm. went to a hotel room and you mm -hmm. had sex not once but twice. Unreal. <laughs> what are we, 20? <laughs> yeah. Can you tell me about that, about why you needed to write that and also about what that impulse is to kind of live, I suppose, in the face of death? Right. So I put that in the first draft um, because I just wanted to make sure that I didn't sort of edit myself and I wanted to like tell the whole truth and then edit down after that. But mm -hmm. I wanted to make sure I sort of left it all on the pitch, so to speak. And 
Then I sent it to my editor and my wife and my editor, female, Harriet. And um, I was like, of course, I'll take this out, but I just wanted to get it all out first, you know, because I don't, I don't trust just myself mm. as to what to omit and not. So I was like, I'll take out the sex part. And both of them were like, do not take that out. That's so important. Mm. And um, I was glad that my wife felt that way because, you know, it's her sex in the book as well. You know, uh, we share uh, custody of our sex. Um, and uh, <laughs> I... I but she was like, no, it's important. People need to know that. And and by now, we know countless uh, bereaved parents. And she's like, no, that'll be good, nice for them to read in case they feel bad about sex that they had when it's other, you know, stuff with their own kids. And um, I think it just showed – I said in the book it wasn't like we were like, hey, you want to have sex? Or like, you know, like, wow, this atmosphere is such that we should – it's just that we were like holding each other so tightly and so scared. And, you know, we're married, so – when you're close, you know, we're like, all of a sudden we were having sex and, and we were terrified, mm -hmm. you know what I mean? And I don't know. I mean, we're both from such strange puritanical cultures, you know, America and England, um, where people can be really weird about sex. But the fact is, is it's a normal thing that people do. And if you're within the confines of a marriage where you've had multiple kids, you know, when you're scared and afraid, why the hell not, mm -hmm. you know? Um, and so it's just about, I don't know, just, I guess, letting people in terrified and terrifying situations know that that's one thing they have in their toolkit. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. But then the book came out and so many um, people who've been through various forms of hell were like, hey, really appreciate you putting that in there. <laughs> and I was like, oh, well, thank my editor and my wife. Yeah, um, no. I would have taken it out. It's beautiful. And it's, yeah, I, th I think it is a brave thing to have said. And you do a act of service to your reader by saying it, definitely. It's fantastic. But you also write about, for example, being in the hospital and one of you having to rush off and order your, organize your one of your other son's birthday parties. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and you were working very hard during this time as mm -hmm. well. What is the courage that it takes to keep so-called normal life, as it were, running and moving forward and work happening and birthday parties happening whilst in the middle of the biggest tragedy that any of us can imagine, really. So the way that we did that was um, we learned or not, we weren't told, nobody said to do this, um, but we just sort of gathered. We couldn't forget about the other kids during this mm. time and we couldn't forget about each other. I would understand the couple who's like, hey, why don't we put our relationship on the back burner? We'll focus mostly on the sick kid. The other kids, we'll get to them when we can. And absolutely, you know, I, I would understand people having a strategy meeting and like settling on that. I would kick down the door and be like, no, you can't do that. But we early on figured we got to take care of the other kids. Mm -hmm. We cannot forget them. Um, and our relationship is going to be important to them. Mm -hmm. Us, Our marriage staying strong is going to be something that every child, Henry included, or perhaps especially, can lean on, mm -hmm. you know? So I'm just so glad, you know, I mean, for me, I'm comfortable with the, the word grace there. We were, some grace entered our hearts, lives, decision-making processes where we knew we had to take care of our marriage 
and the other kids and just have the other kids in the hospital as much as mm. possible. Mm. Um, and then with each other, yeah, we did have to go on dates. You know what I mean? We had to go for walks. We had to do tag team runs where you go for a run, tap me out, I'll go for a run, you know, and then we'll eat yogurt. I, yogurt, that's yogurt in English. <laughs> um, in uh, On the floor of the hospital room with the boys. Yeah. Um, and... Yeah, I'm really grateful for that and my appreciation for my wife and for the boys who aren't Henry really clobbered me on the head as I kind of was writing the book. Because I knew if you'd said to me like, hey, how did your wife and other boys acquit themselves during all of this? I would have been like, oh, beyond amazing. Mm. Uh, but as I wrote it, I was like, Jesus, this is very possibly the most useful thing about this book for me has been seeing on paper how amazing my wife and other boys are because that I can take with me. Mm. I think that you should write a, I'd like to read Rob Delaney's book on on marriage, actually. Mm. I really think that you, you well, have let, a lot let me to say speak on it. to that. I, you might be correct. I'm not saying I have good advice, but I am saying that I am fascinated by marriage. And the two things I've made that anybody cared about were the show Catastrophe and this book. And both of them are about the, like, battlefield of marriage. Mm. And not you're bat not battling each other, but in a good one, you're battling, you know, all the forces that assail you. The elements and, of life. Um, and so I can't friggin' – I'm so fascinated by it. Um, like with the show Catastrophe, I would say when we were pitching it to people, I would be like, look, I'm so sick of these sitcoms where the wife is like, my idiot husband. And the husband is like, eh, my friggin' wife. It's like, <sighs> well, just kill each other. Do a murder-suicide. Come on. Because <laughs> if that's how you really feel, because that's so unrealistic. Like, it's fascinating. I'm not saying it isn't boring sometimes. I'm not saying you don't legitimately want to kill each other mm. like and are planning to and should try to only do your searches on the dark web of how <laughs> you're going to do it. And then at the opposite end of the spectrum, you're folding your spouse's laundry and you start to cry mm. because of how cute her tiny little socks are. And you can't believe, look at the little footsie, oh my God, <laughs> that they go on. And you, you get to sleep in a bed with those feet. like And, and you vacillate between the two. So yeah. rarely are you in the middle being like, things are fine. Yeah. And, right, and so yeah. to me, I wish there was something that fascinated me as much because I'm so sick of making things, catastrophe, and this book that take arterial blood from me and really show the world how I really feel. Like I wish – I need to just do more harder fiction or something because – But I, I would don't like want... to read you, not <laughs> fiction. Like yeah. I, I love memoir. I've written yeah. four memoirs now because I want to read about people's real lives. Oh, can I tell you a funny way uh, that yeah. your husband can insult you? Yeah. <laughs> um, and I, t I came up with this for my wife. Like if someone's asking her like, oh, what's your husband like? And you could be like, well, let me put it this way. He's written two memoirs before the age of 50. That's what I'm dealing with. So your husband could be like, say yeah, the same thing. Yeah, yeah, Four absolutely. memoirs Four. before the age of Christ. I mean, you see what I'm up against? You know? I mean, how dare we? <laughs> no, it's true. But this is a podcast about bravery as well. And I, I didn't know we were going to talk about this, but I am really mm. interested by the bravery of commitment yeah. and long t a long-term relationship. And obviously yeah. the idea of, uh, you know, sex with different people has a certain like yeah. excitement and people talk about that phrase, mm -hmm. the 
hurly-burly of the chaise longue compared to the deep comfort of the the double bed i.e. Yeah. that marriage is boring because it's right. because okay, it's comforting but it's boring it's long and and that multiple different partners is exciting and it's more life enhancing yeah. i personally think that that true commitment is like one of the most courageous and brave and daring and wild things that you can you can do because that's saying my life my entire yeah. life everything mm-hmm. of my life mm-hmm. just to you mm-hmm. yeah it's so weird because i i think of it like I don't know if this is apocryphal, but what was it Churchill who said, like, democracy is the worst type of government except for all the other kinds? (laughs) And I sort of feel like that way about a monogamous marriage. Mm. Like, Jesus. I mean, you describe it on paper. (sighs) No thanks. But then all the other stuff. Holy shit. You know what I mean? So it's like the lesser (laughs) of evils. It's so weird, my cobbled together Frankenstein of reasons for preferring strongly marriage for Mm. myself because there's so many positive ones and then so many negative weird ones you know I mean what are some of the negative ones like oh yeah when people are like I just feel like I'd be happier if I'm always like what where did being happy get into your recipe for who who who's happy <laughs> or like or like if my Sarah, if if my wife like says something about another couple i'm like do you, are you seriously suggesting that they're not immiserated on a round the clock like <laughs> and she's like you don't know that i'm like yes i do i live on the same planet they're miserable <laughs> like so first of all jettison the idea of being happy totally have occasional fun like deep dive into amazing, interesting things and stuff. But I think trying to be happy is um, way overemphasized in futile the modern exercise. Come on. I mean, it, have an interesting life, but be happy. So so I don't think like, oh, I'd be happier over there. Mm. I know I won't be happy mm. anywhere. Mm. Uh, and I say that while happy. I mean, I, I just sort of, <laughs> I think applying some curmudgeonness to it is 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 good for me. Um, and then also I've thought about divorcing my wife before. God knows she's thought about divorcing me. And I can tell you more about that in a moment. But when I do daydream and allow myself to imagine a world where we do get divorced, um, I think, well, if we did get divorced, we'd have to live pretty close to each other, definitely on the same block. Mm-hmm. Um, cause we would, it would be absolutely 50, 50 capacity because I'd have to be with them the maximum amount of time mm-hmm. that I can. And she would have to, and I'm already thinking about her in a loving manner and she deserves it. And she's a good <laughs> mom. So I definitely want her to have at least 50. So we have like 50.00 capacity. We live on the same block. Mm-hmm. It's critical that our relationship remain friendly and amicable and stuff. So by that point, I'm like, we'll just stay married. What's the point? You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. Um, and then also, I think it's also okay to want to have sex with other people, think about it, mm-hmm. uh, masturbate about it, whatever. But if you go and do – the thing is, is let's say you want the succulent peach of your neighbor Bernadine. There we go. <laughs> um Right? You want her peach, okay? It's a good-looking peach. It probably tastes good. But Bernadine, you're not just going to get the peach. You're also going to get her big shopping bag full of grapefruits of all the terrible things about her. And you don't just get the peach. (laughs) Bernadine brings the bag of grapefruits. And then you've got a kitchen exploding with fruit. You've got your wife's peach, which is perfectly delicious. And then all her rotten grapefruits, Bernadine's (laughs) bag of garbage. You can't even fit. You know what I mean? Because you don't just get to 
cherry pick the bonbon mm. parts. Mm. Sorry, the sex you want to have with somebody else, they're a person and they're going to bring out, oh, and then forget about it. Then uh, then I'm starting to think about having a nap or <laughs> like coffee from a specific place. There are other creature comforts, yeah. you know, than sex with stupid Bernadine, who when you really start to think about it, I mean, yeah, no. Fuck her. And I mean, and not in that way. I mean, just go Bernadine, turn around, walk away. Look at that butt. Okay, stop it. Okay, and then go and do something else. You need to write a book about marriage. Also, because you're like, you can talk so well about, you can talk so well about sex and you can talk so well about death, but you need to, I, I think it would be, I think you could save and I, well, help I just a need, lot of I people. need to figure out a way to do, well, first of all, it couldn't be anything prescriptive because I don't know anything. I mean, lose a child, lose mm. your, can I ask, uh, your sister's name? Nell. Nell. Older, younger? She uh, was two years older than me. Two years older. Mm. So you were the same mm. physical size. Yes. I mean, because two yes. years, that disappears yeah. in a second. My All my kids are two years apart. So you would sleep in the same bed sometimes. Yeah. And you do fight. And, yeah, absolutely. And trade secrets yeah. and all this yeah. stuff. Because you lost your dear Nell, you've been humbled mm. by life, right? Mm. You, she's not here anymore corporeally, you can communicate with her, say things. You don't know if she hears them or not. Mm. You know, does she speak to you? I don't know. But like, you've been humbled, right? And you didn't want that to happen. Mm. And and it hurt and it hurts, right? So when something like that happens, you learn that you're just not in the driver's seat, mm. right? So that's why I can't give advice. I can't write an advice book. I can say how it is. How You can say how it is. And that's yeah. what you do with your book. You show what it feels like. If you could show us all what it feels like to be married and 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 yeah. you don't say you don't say how you're doing it because I agree that's prescriptive and then that's sort of but I just I want to I, I want to I just wish I could write a friggin' sci-fi thing or something. But the fact is, I'm so endlessly fascinated by marriage as evidenced by the only things I've made that people paid attention to. <laughs> <laughs> so I just want to do something that comes at less of a cost <laughs> to my the house that I live in and its residents, you know? <laughs> like, there are also memoirists in particular who'll be like, well, if they didn't want you to write about it, then they shouldn't have done it because your story is yours. Mm. All right, great. Mm. But, like... It's, is it your job to to take them out in the public square and, mm. you know, shout about them through a megaphone, even if they did shitty stuff? I just want to, I don't know, be protective and learn how to do that. And, yeah, I mean, they always say, like, write what you know. I want to not do that does anymore. Your, with, with confessional writing <laughs> yeah. and filmmaking, I guess, does yeah. your wife, do you have a conversation with her about how far to go with it, what you can write about, talk about? Act oh yeah, about. definitely. Um, yeah, definitely. And she uh, read draft after draft of this book and was incredibly helpful. So first of all, she's a constant reader all the time. Um, she does book podcasts. She um, reads nonstop and is very astute and just smart and funny. And so in addition to it being critical that I had her permission to write about all this stuff in this book. I also wanted her editorial yeah. input. Um, and so, yeah, everything about this. The first couple seasons of Catastrophe, after a couple seasons of that, she was like, let's uh, let's have a chat here for a minute. Um, <laughs> and uh, she was like, if you want to veer more into the fictional realm, that's A-OK with me. <laughs> uh, and so, and we did. And I actually enjoyed, yeah, 
doing that more. Mm-hmm. I love the the two last two seasons of Catastrophe. I personally enjoy more than the first two. Really. Mm-hmm. I want just to also. We were just talking about Nell, and I, there's something I really want to say to you, which is which is important. Which I I and I want to acknowledge, which is that I write about my sister having died, and she was 46 years old, and mm-hmm. she had had two children. She'd had a very big life. She was yeah. a hugely kind of wildly creative person. She started mm-hmm. a circus. She was an amazing, wow. big, big person. Uh, she was 46. Mm-hmm. And when she died, I felt as though I was going to die with pain. Yeah. I felt my life was over. And, you know, here we are having this conversation mm-hmm. three, three and a half years later. Your son was a little baby. He was a little baby boy. Mm-hmm. And I want to acknowledge that I do believe that there is a, not exactly status exactly, but mm-hmm. that your suffering is, yeah. has been, and your loss has been greater because Nell had a long adult life and she, and uh-huh. she had her long lifetime and Henry didn't have that. And I think it's. Yeah. He really, was two years, nine months, just for people who are listening. Yeah. And I think it is a really important thing to say because some people say, well, and you write funnily about this, mm-hmm. about your sort of anger about when somebody says their grandpa has got tumor. Mm-hmm. And you say, grandpa is fucking well supposed to have a tumor. Mm-hmm. You know, he, but this my little boy, isn't. this isn't supposed to be mm-hmm. happening to him. Yeah, And I think that kind of... I don't know if status is the right word exactly, but that your that your loss mm-hmm. has been bigger, and I and I kind of want to acknowledge that, I suppose, and respect that, and not say, oh, Nell's death. Nell's death was untimely. You know, she was only in her mid forties, but well, but she I, had had a long life. Uh, I'd a like lifetime. to. Li- I'm forty six. If I drop dead tomorrow, uh, that would bum me out. Yeah. Uh, not that I'm afraid to die. Um, I'm not anymore uh, because of Henry. But uh, I do. There's more I want to do, and my other kids need me, and I'm having fun mm. on my own as well. You know, mm. so. Um, but she's your sister. It's funny because I, I I've many times have heard myself say since this book came out, you know, like, but like the death of a child or a sibling. And the reason I include sibling is because I watched my little boys. Mm. I, I call them the big boys in the book. They're four and six mm-hmm. when he died. The big boys. <laughs> Um, I can't even imagine. You know, like my sister's visiting London right now. She's staying with me. If she died, I would rip my eyeballs out. Um, so I, and, and your sister, two years apart from you, you know, going through similar life stations and stuff like mm-hmm. that. I think what that also is, um, cause I think about, um, Henry's brother who is two years older than him, who I feel there's like a ghost with him. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like his sense of loss and his loss related related behavior is palpable to me as his dad. So he's, you know, and so for you, that's, you've lost your sister, but it's also in some ways, I think, like watching what it would be like if you died right now, you know? Yeah, it's a, it's a good observation, actually. It so is. I'm very, very sensitive to the death of a sibling. Mm. I don't know how I would deal with it. Uh, but to speak to your what you were the concept that you were talking about. Yeah, if somebody's talking about a grandparent or a dog, fuck off. You know what I mean? <laughs> Say complain about your grandparent or your dog near me, you're in real physical danger. Yeah. Yeah. I, I like that. I like I liked how <laughs> open you were about that. I also was grateful the way that you wrote about so so when I was 16, my mum had a uh, and I had a very happy childhood, but when I was 16, my mum had a massive uh she had a riding accident. She fell mm-hmm. off her horse, she was left with very profound brain damage. Yeah. So she was left in a very brain damaged state for 
for 22 years where she mm. couldn't walk or talk. And that destroyed and changed our lives in many ways. And then she died in 2013. And then in 2015, Nell got cancer. And during that, mm. there were other things that happened. My mum's sister was killed on a on a quad bike. Jesus. And my husband had a massive accident where he broke both his legs. It was like oh a God. tsunami of loss. Mm. And you write about your, you know, whilst, and it's shocking to read this, that, that we, we're learning about Henry, we're learning about his illness. Mm-hmm. And then suddenly your brother-in-law yeah. also takes his own life. Yeah. And that feeling of unbearable levels of loss yeah. and suffering and how mm-hmm. you kind of process loss upon loss yeah. and the courage that that takes. Mm. Can you tell me a little bit more about that? Yeah, so certainly I'm not alone in having, you know, two or more terrible things happen in my life in a short period of time. That's that type of stuff happens. Um and and worse. But uh, it was shocking for my family because, um, you know, in, in a very short period of time, um, my brother-in-law died by suicide um, and then my son died. Mm. And so my sister's husband dies very tragically and then my two-year-old son dies. And so it was really this horrific symmetry where my sister and I both experienced incredible loss. And like I said earlier, you know, she's here visiting right now and we're wonderfully close. We always have been. I'm five years older and she's a girl. I'm a boy. So there was never rivalry or big fights or anything like Mm -hmm. that because we were just sort of different just enough that, you know, we always got along quite well. So then for that to happen, it was of course, terrible. It remains terrible um, and painful for both of us in different ways. And at the same time, we're able to offer each other support that siblings wouldn't normally be able to offer each other because it is sort of a a weird, almost simultaneous thing to have happen where Mm. two siblings and there's no third, there's no odd one out who just like got a promotion at the same time (laughs) and can't relate to us. It's just us. And we have sort of an understanding of vocabulary and similar experience. And we know what works for each other, you know, like, because we all know we both have people in our lives that are like, well, here, try, did you try this um, herb? You know, and we're (laughs) like, shut the fuck up. And um, we let each other, you know, cry and complain and rail at the heavens and and then we get through that and then yeah. we have fun, you know. Yeah. That's why I talk about, you know, if something somebody's going through something, they're, they're like, what do I say? Well, nothing. That I mean, that is that a relief to hear? I don't know. But there's nothing you can say. But you can say. be there. Yeah, yeah. You know. And so that's what we do for each other. We don't try to fix each other. We don't – Or somebody, if she's like, oh, this is horrible, I'm like, yeah, it is, mm. you know. Mm. I think it's really helpful, though, for other people to kind of – read this and hear you talking about this and know, kind of feel more about that level of loss and Mm -hmm. that life and that it is absolutely horrible and that there is no kind of tying that up in a, Mm -hmm. in a neat ribbon to say there's knowledge or whatever that comes from it, that it is horrible and yet life does go on. Mm -hmm. You know, that is very, very useful, isn't it? Big time. Can't learn that lesson Mm -hmm. enough. 
Can we talk a little bit about addiction? Sure. And the, and the bravery of facing that addiction and um, getting hold. Is that the right way to describe it? Getting hold of that addiction? I don't know. Um, you know, they talk in the 12 steps. Um, the first one is we admitted we were powerless over alcohol mm. and our lives had become unmanageable. And I've found the 12 steps to be very helpful. Um, I've heard them described as a blueprint for a spiritual experience. So, yeah, acknowledgement, similar mm. to how we were saying, like, yeah, point at something and name it and say what it is. Mm. And that's much better than trying to ignore it or paper over it. But it was funny when you said that your husband broke both his legs. I wanted to go, oh, I broke both my arms, which I did um, in the car accident mm. that led to me getting sober. Um, so for me, I was lucky in a sense in that my uh, bottom, as they call it, was uh, breaking both my arms in a terrible car accident that, thank God, did not involve anybody else. It was me driving a car into a building 21 years ago. And I didn't break my legs, but they were damaged. So I was in a wheelchair, two broken arms, um, covered in blood, um, in jail. And uh, I thought about it and I was like, this is about as low as you go. You know, lower than that is death, mm -hmm. you know, or prison because um, he did kill somebody. Right? There's not like daylight between those two things and where I mm -hmm. was. You couldn't really fit like a sheet of paper in mm -hmm. between them. It's it's bad and it's low. And so I was like, okay, somehow – I don't know. I'm I'm okay with using the word grace again. <laughs> I was shown some grace, and um, so for me it was like, all right, I can keep drinking and kill or die. If I knew it were die, then I might have kept drinking. But since it became clear to me that it could also be kill, mm. I don't want to kill anybody. Mm. Um, I said I got to stop, and so I got the help that I needed, and uh, God knows that help is out there if you want to get it. Um, so, so that's how that happened. So I, I don't take too much credit. Um, yeah, sure. I don't drink on a day-to-day -day basis, but it was pretty brilliantly illustrated for me by the circumstances that I found myself in or mm. put myself in. But the self-reckoning that must come with that, and the, yeah. does that feel like a brave act? Um, the continuing to do it, I suppose, would be my definition of bravery because bravery unfortunately you know when you get to our age bravery there's a lot of drudgery in it anybody can be brave for a day mm. Ooh, it's exciting time to be brave you know what i mean um but at day in day out mm. that's what separates the uh big dogs from the pups that stay on the porch <laughs> <laughs> it's so interesting talking to you i've really really enjoyed this conversation and in me too what you've been talking about, um, when, and it's kind of feels, it, it sort of feels wrong to ask you this, I suppose, but when do you feel that you have been bravest in your life? Um, I mean, so my wife and I just had our 17th wedding anniversary. Mm. And that to me is the day, I don't know about bravery, but that's when I'm proudest. Um because I don't give parents too much credit for 
their children that they're understandably crazy about. Because you know, if you have five kids, how different they all are from each other. So yes, you've put up guardrails. You've loved them. You've fed them and changed their nappies and listened to them when they've had problems and offered guidance. You do all that. But you know there's no awards for that, right? You do it because your body tells you to, you know, genetically you want to do it. But there's no genetic thing saying, oh, yeah, maintain your marriage. And and so anytime my wife and I have an anniversary, I'm like, we did that. Nobody else did it. You know what I mean? There was no biological imperative. It's just I like her. I love her. She the same to me most of the time, you know, or 51% of the time at least. And so that. I'm proud of. I mean, in terms of bravery, I mean, the things I've done that are, I guess, against the odds are quitting drinking, getting help for depression. Um, Because both of those, like, I mean, it felt good to drink to the point of blackout. Mm -hmm. Like, it felt so good, you know? And when I was depressed and wanted to die, you know, there were powerful forces within me saying, like, you know, go jump off a cliff, you know, go take a handful of Vicodin and drink vodka, you know. Mm. I didn't do that. And then also, like, making a living as a comedian. I mean, in the in the beginning when, you know, I had less than no money. I'm in debt. My wife is a teacher. I'm taking our shared car to do stand-up and in Los Angeles. And people are saying, telling me no all the time. And not all of them are idiots. So, you know, like <laughs> yeah. it would have been easy to be like, yeah, you really should quit. So I, I those, I put those in a bucket, <laughs> like persevering as a stand up, getting control or, you know, getting a handle on depression, whatever that is, and, and continuing to not drink. The, the, the three of those things are related to me because they take, you know, daily effort. And then, in terms of things uh, with Henry, I can't even imagine another way of having done it for Henry himself, mm. you know, the man of the hour. But it is very easy to imagine having let the relationships with the other boys and my wife slide. Um, and we didn't do that mm. in our family. We mm. made sure to take care of everybody else. So I'm very grateful for that. I'm congenitally unable to say I'm proud of myself for that. Um, other people could tell me that I should be proud of it. It's, I don't know if it's like Boston Irish Catholic inability to say like, I'm proud of myself. (laughs) Um, I'd like to get to a place where I could say that, you know, um, if somebody else were telling me about it, I'd be like, you should be proud of that. Maybe one day I'll get there. (laughs) (laughs) Will you share your talisman with me? Sure. I hope you don't think it's corny. And I had lots of stuff that I thought about, but I really ultimately... Settled on my wedding wedding band. Um, I love wearing it. I remember when we went on our honeymoon and like it got like a little ding with a rock. And I was like, oh my God, what am I going to do? And then you realize it gets dinged all over and now it's just all dings. And, um, but I love to look at that and know that it's a symbol of the, of my marriage to a woman that I met, you know, 19 years ago, volunteering at a camp for people with disabilities who is in a bikini and was so hot and funny and hilarious and we immediately started doing like stupid jokes and games and stuff and 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 watching her uh take care of of um teenagers with cerebral palsy and uh you know little did i know years later we'd have lots of sons and one of them would be very disabled by a brain tumor and and she would take care of him and 
And then also now we're nearing the end of our second decade together. And to know that we can still, even now, I can look at behavior that I'm doing and being like, oh, wouldn't it be great if I jettisoned that horrible, calcified, bad habit that I've been carrying around forever and do it? Mm-hmm. You know, you can, it's so crazy that you can learn new tricks mm-hmm. as an old dog. So yeah, and we just had our anniversary and I'm always excited about our anniversary, which sounds so silly to me, but it's true. So shame on me. (laughs) No, it's so wonderful. I love it that it's your wedding ring and I love it because when reading your book and, you know, looking at your pictures on Instagram of your beautiful, beautiful son, your Mm -hmm. love for him. Yeah. For, and the way that you write about all your sons is so <laughs> very, very clear and so very obvious. But I love the fact that kind of around this, there is your marriage and your relationship together. And that is the thing that is kind of holding it all. And I love the fact that your talisman is representative of that. And I maintain that you have so much to um, teach us about Relation, you know, a long-term relationship. You are clearly doing it so well. And I love the fact that you've also talked about, you know, there are things you can learn now that it, it is an ongoing kind of creative act of love. It's, yeah. it's it, it changes, it grows. I, and I have to really remove any credit that myself or anybody else would give me because a lot of it came from mistakes and tragedies, you know. Like uh, some years ago, my wife said that she would divorce me because of my workaholism. Mm. And so I thought about it and I didn't want her to divorce me. So I drastically reduced the amount of hours in a week and a month and a year that I worked um, and learned to delegate and learned to trust other people and to to realize you can't, you know, a lot of times – dads will think, oh, well, the way that I show my family love is by working all the time and Mm -hmm. making the family bank account as large as possible. That's ridiculous, you know, because you've got to be present. So my wife taught me that in a manner that at the time hurt. And then not long after that, um, Henry got sick and and he died, Mm -hmm. really underlining for me the value of time in a way that I couldn't have learned any other way. So I guess I, you know, sure, I did respond to stimuli that showed me that there was a more difficult path through this life. And I picked the easier one, not easier, but better, you know, Um, and at the end of the day, ultimately easier because you're not wailing in pain, you know, Mm. Um, except when you are. But (laughs) yeah. But you say what also what you learn, you said you, you don't take credit for it because it comes from mistakes and tragedies. You mm-hmm. used it, but that is life is a series of mistakes and tragedies and yeah. beauty and joy. But that is the nature of life, isn't it? And well, you know what I do now at my advanced age is I um I kind of like consciously say like thank you. Not for the death of Henry, that's too much, um, or the death of my wonderful brother in law. Uh, I'm not there, maybe I never will be, but You know, if like professional um, backslides or things that happen, you know, difficult things, I try to look at them and, you know, say, thank you for Mm -hmm. that difficult thing, you know, Mm -hmm. because do you think that I will not metabolize that and turn it into a pearl? I will, you Mm -hmm. know, like I'm, that's the type of cockroach that I am. And I also say thank you for the good stuff, you know, but at this point there's, uh, I know how to make a purse out of a sow's ear. Did I use that correctly? (laughs) Um, 
and but I also know how to make a purse out of a lovely uh, brocaded, um, bejeweled fabric. Yeah, you know, point is that I like to make purses. Yeah, <laughs> Rob Delaney, it's been a real joy talking to you. Thank you very, very much. Thank you, Clover. I have absolutely loved the conversations that I've had for this first series of Tiny Acts of Bravery. The whole process of recording them has also taken me on a very interesting and demanding and beautiful and at times slightly melancholic journey. I started out uh, this recording this series when I was still living in England. Um, I was packing up the house. I was uh, thinking about this big move that we were going to make to Washington DC with, with my kids to join my husband for his work. And when I first started recording, the thought of moving seemed almost quite surreal, I suppose. I didn't expect to relocate my life completely. And this isn't a permanent move. We will move back to England within, I don't know, two or three years. But even living with that level of uncertainty is a new thing for me. You know, I thought I'd, I'd live in England all my life. Um, I, I saw myself as part of the landscape where I live. So when my husband first said to me, we need to go and live in America, I was really, really actually very resistant to it. And feeling myself changing and kind of spiritually expanding has been, been interesting. And it's coincided with me recording these interviews for Tiny Acts of Bravery. And it's been a real privilege to do the two things at the same time. Bravery is, you know, being brave is a daily act, I think. You know, we're often asked to be brave. And it's not always in the big things, it can be in the smaller things. I know there are a couple of times earlier on this week when I was walking around Washington feeling, honestly feeling really, really lost. I couldn't make anything work, I couldn't make my phone work, my bank cards kept being refused. I had to sign into three and a half thousand different apps just to work out what time I needed to pick up my children from school. And I was walking around crying, feeling actually really pretty desperate. Two days later, I feel completely fine and you know i know that it's just that thing of sort of knowing that you can get through stuff and i realize that bravery manifests itself in so many different ways and these these conversations i've had have helped me to feel braver and to feel less alone yeah i really hope that we can go on to, to season two if you've listened to any of these interviews and they've been helpful tell your friends about them share them on social media and if you've got time to rate and review that would be absolutely brilliant um, because your support for the podcast means everything and will help me to to be able to record a second series. Thank you so much for listening. Follow me on social media, on Instagram at clover.stroud, where I write and talk and record about this kind of stuff a lot. But I really, really hope to, that you will be able to join me as well for series two. And thank you so much for being there. I hope that you are feeling brave. <laughs>